Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 24, the book of Numbers chapter 24. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to preach tonight and while pastor's away. And uh, looking here at a portion of scripture that maybe isn't very common to look at, but I think there's some good truth here and good application for you and I tonight. And so it's going to be uh, kind of more of a, a study, and uh, we're going to try to look through three chapters now. We will get you out of here, okay? Don't worry. I'm not going to be like Pharaoh and hold you here till you're asking to be let go. Um, but I think uh, if, you, if you track with me, we can get through this pretty quick and look at this narrative uh, tonight. But I want to start kind of where we're going to end. And so Numbers chapter 24, if you're there, let's stand together. We're just going to read one verse, and then I'll have you be seated. And uh, Numbers chapter 24 and we're going to look down at verse number 17. It says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheph. Thank you. You may be seated. So now we'll look here at a prophecy uh, that is sometimes called the star Prophecy. And I've got some slides prepared that I think will help us as we look through this. And I even got a fancy laser pointer, so if there are any cats in the room, uh, be warned. Uh, but in no, I want you to take your Bible and turn back a couple pages. And we're going to actually start uh, in chapter 22, looking here at this prophecy. And uh, just by way of some background, uh, what's going on when we come to chapter 22... Uh, we find that Israel has come out of Egypt. God has delivered them uh, from the Egyptians. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're wandering in the wilderness. And as they're making their way throughout the wilderness on their way to the promised land, along the way they've encountered uh, several different people groups. And as they've come to different people groups, there's sometimes been conflict, sometimes there's been passage. But uh, in the chapter prior to this, chapter 21, uh, we would have read about, if we'd started there, the Israelites coming to the land of the Amorites. And when they get to the land of the Amorites, they ask King Sihon to allow them passage through. And they promise, hey, we're not going to take any of your food. We're not going to drink any of your water. We know there's a lot of us. Uh, you don't have to worry about us. All we're asking for is passage through the land. Well, the king refuses, and instead he decides that he's going to attack Israel. Well, that doesn't go good for them. Uh, God blesses Israel, defeats the Amorites, and they continue on their journey and make camp in the plains of Moab. Well, Sihon and the Amorites, those were the big power on the east bank of the Jordan. These were the big dogs. These were the guys who were strong, and yet their defeat was like swatting a fly for Israel. And so people are starting to be concerned. They're starting to realize, hey, this nation of Israel, this is a, a pretty powerful group we're dealing with here. And so Israel next goes to Bashan. They defeat King Og and his armies, and they decimate him. They completely wipe him out. And so now the whole east bank of Jordan becomes Israelite territory. And other kingdoms are starting to take notice, especially one of the kingdoms that's to the south. See, also on the east bank of the Jordan River, uh, we see that there, on, the, on the side of the Dead Sea, where the Jordan enters it, you have the country of Moab. And so the Israelites, on their way to the Promised Land, they'd marched right along the northern border of Moab, and uh, the, they, on their way to, to um, the Promised Land there. And um, what's more that I need to mention here, I failed to mention as well, is that the land 
Oh, you already got ahead of me. Don't get ahead of me here. Uh, it's okay. You can leave it up now. The land that they had taken, I think it says it on here, uh, was once part of Moab. And so this, that lighter shade of green once belonged to Moab. And so they had not only defeated those kings, but that was land that once belonged to Moab. And as Israel had approached Moab, God made clear to Israelites, hey, don't mess with the Moabites, don't mess with the Edomites, because they were distant relatives. They weren't supposed to go and fight them, just pass right on through. Well, evidently, the Moabites and the Edomites were not aware of this command from God, because they were afraid. They were concerned that Israel was going to be a threat to them. And so that's where we kind of start as we enter into chapter 22. And so in Numbers chapter 22, we're introduced to our first major individual in this story, and that is King Balak. And so King Balak, it tells us there, uh, by the way, in verse uh, number one, it says, And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side, Jordan, by Jericho. If you look at chapter 25 and verse 1, it tells us more specifically that they were camped in Shittim. And this is directly across from Jericho, so it matches the biblical description of where they're at. And so they're, uh, they're on the other side, the east side of uh, Jordan there at Shittim. And it says in verse 2, And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab, it says in verse 3, was sore afraid of the people because there were many. And Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. Now, Balak, he's the king of Moab, and his name means uh, that he is, uh, his name means devastator. It's a very evil name, kind of ooh, spooky, you know, the devastator, King Balak. Um, he's a bad guy. Well, this devastator, along with his people, they're pretty afraid of Israel. They're pretty afraid after all that they just witnessed take place and all the reports that have come back. And, and it says there in verse uh, three that they were sore afraid. It even says that they were distressed. Because of the children of Israel. And just so you understand, that word distress uh, means to cause sickening dread. And so quite literally, this means that they were so terrified of Israel that it was causing them to become sick. Their fears made their guts wrench. And what's so ironic is that they had nothing to fear. God had told them, hey, don't worry about them. Leave them alone. You know, you're not going to mess with the Moabites. Just pass on through. And had they left them alone, there wouldn't have been any real issues. But we're going to see Balak doesn't do that. In fact, uh, the next part of this, we see that Balak, he comes up with this plan. It says in verse number 5 that he sent messengers, there, uh, therefore, unto Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his, of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there's a people come out from Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth, and they abide over me. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me, this people. And so he comes up with this plan that he's going to go and he's going to get a diviner and he's going to pronounce a curse upon the people so that he can be successful in driving them out and defeating them. And so that's where we meet the second main character, and that uh, is Balaam, the, the diviner, this prophet, uh, if you will. And so Numbers 25, uh, chapter 22 and verse 5 tells us that uh, he's from Pethor uh, and that he's the son of Beor. And apparently he's a pretty well-known diviner. Balaam had a reputation that those that he caused to be cursed would be cursed. Those that he would bless would be blessed. If you look down in verse number six at the end, it says, for I what I know that he whom thou blessed is blessed and he whom thou cursed is cursed. And so he had a reputation. This was, if you wanted somebody cursed, this was the guy you went to. 
If you wanted somebody to be blessed, this was the guy uh, that you went to. He was the one that was going to do that. And Pithor is a city that's located along the Euphrates River. In fact, I'm uh, going to use my laser here. If you look, it's right up here. It's kind of hard for you to see. But it's way up there. And you'll notice uh, if, we drew, if we drew a line and we follow this all the way down here to Moab, that's about a 400-mile journey. So this guy is going quite the distance to find this diviner. He's going out of his way to find the best of the best. And so uh, word had gotten out again that he was skillful at cursing people. Now, what does his name mean? Balaam, his name means the devourer, the devourer. I find it interesting that the devastator and the devourer are both trying to prevent Israel from getting into Canaan. Now, Pethor, again, it was famous for its priest diviners. They were sorcerers. They were magicians. They were soothsayers for hire. And that's why it says here in verse 7, it goes on to say that the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with their rewards for divination in their hand. They were going to purchase a prophet. So he was a prophet for profit. See what we did there? Um, he, was, he, was, he was available for sale. You could pay him to profit what you want. And so uh, King Balak, you guys didn't get that. Maybe you'll get it later. <laughs> King Balak of Moab, he's sending for the most renowned cursor in the known world, Balaam, to come to curse uh, Israel. Balak, again, had heard about all the things that God had done for Israel. And so he needed the best of the best. He needed the one. I mean, he's going up against the God that delivered them from the Egyptians. He's going up against the God that parted the Red Sea, the God that sent 10 plagues upon Egypt, the God that for the last 38 years has provided manna for his people every day, the God that had found water in the desert for over a million people. And so he needed the very best and he was willing to give up just about all of his wealth in order to find the guy that he felt could do the best job of cursing Israel. And so we see here the first encounter in, in uh, verse number 7 of chapter 22. They come to Balak and they, uh, Balaam and they tell him the words that Balak spake. They're telling him, hey, listen, we need you to hi we're hiring you to come and to curse this people. And Balaam's response, it seems kind of spiritual, but we're going to talk about who Balaam is here in a second. Uh, but Balaam says, hey, you know, uh, let me pray about it. Let me go see what God has to say about this matter. Now, I think that this was probably one of those negotiating tactics. You know, like when you go and you buy a car and you sit down and you're telling the car salesman, hey, look, here's what I'm wanting, here's what I'm looking for, and here's the deal I'm wanting to get. And he says, you know, you just wait right here. Let me go and talk to the boss, right? I don't know that they actually exist, uh, but they go and they do that, right? And so uh, I think this is a negotiating tactic. He's trying to get them more interested. I don't think that he actually expects God to, to speak to them. And after all, he knows they're desperate. They came 400 miles to come and find him. And so it's as if he's going and saying, hey, you know, let me, let me, I can't make this decision on my own. Let me go talk to the gods about it. And, uh, you know, obviously there are no other gods beside God. And so he wasn't talking to anybody else half the time. So he's probably just making something up. And, uh, and again, I don't know that Balaam actually expected God to come to him that night, but the Lord does. God comes to him and he gives him a message. And God says, hey, these are my people. They're already blessed. You're not going to be cursing them. Verse 12, God says, Balaam, thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. So next morning, Balaam gets up. And he says, hey, sorry, guys, God won't let me go. Now, you'll notice there's a little bit of deception here because Balaam leaves out the part about them being a blessed people and God's not going to be able to curse them. And I tend to think, after knowing a little bit about Balaam and reading, that perhaps uh, he's trying to maybe find a way around this situation. If 
find a way where maybe he can uh, get away with somehow cursing them and, and make good on that, on that gold and that uh, reward that they've brought with them. And so uh, Balaam doesn't tell them that and he sends them on their way. And so the princes, uh, they don't want to make Balak angry when they get back because they failed. And Balaam, he certainly doesn't want to miss out on what they were going to give him. And so they want him to come back for more money. And again, we don't have time to delve into it all, but we need to remember that when we read about Balaam later in Scripture, all of the other authors uh, who talk about Balaam write about him being greedy for profit for Israel's, uh, at Israel's expense. He was willing to sell Israel for a profit. And so Balak, again, we, he's not willing to take no for an answer. So what does he do? Well, he sends more messengers uh, to uh, Balaam. And so uh, this time it says he sends, uh, sends princes that were more and more honorable than the first. So he sends the better princes this time. Apparently he didn't send the best ones the first time. So he sends better ones this time. And not only that, but he brings with him promises of honor. Promises of promotion. Man, we're going to make you look good, Balaam. I'm going to promote you to great honor. That's what he says in verse 16 and 17. Uh, Thus saith Balak, the son of Zippor, let nothing, I pray thee, hinder, me, hinder thee from coming unto me. For I will promote thee unto a very great honor, and I will do whatsoever thou sayest unto me. Come therefore, I pray thee, curse me, this people. Balaam says, hey, look, I'm sorry, but man, even if Balak gave me a whole house full of gold and silver, I can't say anything more than what the Lord uh, tells me to say. And, and, and if we're not careful, we maybe read that and be like, amen, Balaam, way to go, way to, way to take a stand and not do that. Uh, but his, <laughs> his motives are not pure. And uh, after all, why would you mention that if you weren't thinking about it, right? And so uh, he, he says, uh, you know, I'm gonna, let, me go, let me talk to God again. Now, why would you have to go talk to God again if he already gave you an answer? God already said, no, why would you go back? Well, he's hoping God's changed his, his mind because now the stakes are higher. Now there's more at stake. Now there's more uh, that he could gain from this. And, and, and hey, look, God may have changed his mind. I better go back and ask. And so he goes back to God and he asks again. God meets with him. And in Numbers chapter 22, verse 20, it says, And God came to Balaam at night and said unto him, If the men come to, uh, come to call thee, rise up, go with him. Um, but yet the word which I say unto thee, that shalt thou do. Now someone says, hey, God changed his mind. God just gave him permission. God said, hey, you can go. Well, notice there's a, there's a little two-letter word in there, and that's that word if. right? If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. And so God didn't change his mind. God just said, hey, listen, uh, there's a condition upon this. If they come, uh, then you can go with them. But hey, look, I just want to let you know. Don't say anything more than what, I'm, what I tell you. And you can almost hear Balaam. He takes this as permission. He's thinking, great, God's giving me permission. I can go. I can make some money from this. Uh, you know, I'll figure out the whole cursing upon the way. Uh, but, man, let's, let's, let's start loading up the gold. we got a job to do. And so Balaam sets out for Moab. Well, the next morning he gets up. He doesn't tell the princes, uh, hey, if you ask me to go, I can go. He just says, all right, let's go. God said I can go. And so he, he didn't follow through what God said. Um, he offers to go without the men asking him to come. And so God, again, gave him a conditional permission. He made him free to do a certain thing, which, he was, to, uh, which was to go with the men, but he put a condition on it, and that was if they come to you. And so what is Balaam doing? He's using his freedom, his liberty, if you will, as a cloak for his vice. And man, there's a message in there somewhere uh, about today and Christians using their liberty as a cloak for their vice, to do the things uh, they're supposed to do. But we're not going to get at it tonight. And uh, we see, what does God do? Well, God, he takes a stand against Balaam. He disobeyed. He's not happy about that. 
Uh, God's upset with that. And you, this is probably the part of Balaam's story that we're most familiar with, right? With his, his, his run in with the donkey. And uh, God's not happy. He's so angry that he comes out against him. He puts the angel of the Lord to stand in his way. And uh, Balaam, he's riding there on his donkey. The angel of the Lord comes and the donkey sees what's happening. But Balaam's totally clueless. And the, Balaam's like, the, the donkey's like, no, nah, man, we're out of here. We ain't going that way. He starts going aside. And what does Balaam do? He hits him. He tries pulling him back the other way. Poor donkey keeps going. And things start getting a little tighter. Now there's a wall on both sides. And the angel of the Lord's still there. And this donkey's thinking, man, uh, I don't think I want to go this way. And he starts trying to turn out there. And what happens? He pushes up against the wall. It crushes Balaam's foot. He's even more mad. Hits the donkey again. He starts yelling at the donkey again. And keeps going a little bit further. And finally, the donkey just lays down. He's like, I'm not having this. this is a... The donkey is smarter than Balaam. The donkey realizes, hey, if I keep going this way, this is going to lead to destruction. This is a path that leads to destruction, and I'm not going that direction. And, and it's incredible uh, that what happens is he goes to smite the donkey again, and God allows the donkey to open his mouth and talk back to him. But what's weirder is he must, ha he must think he's Dr. Doolittle because he starts talking back to him. Like nothing ever happened. Like this is totally normal. He doesn't stop and say, whoa, a donkey's talking to you. I don't know about you, but if a donkey started talking to me, I started like pinching myself, trying to figure out, am I awake? Am I dreaming? What's going on? What I eat the night before? Uh, but he, he talks back to them. Maybe he thought, man, I've talked to it long enough. About time it started talking back to me. I don't know. But this is obviously a miracle. And Balaam's acting like, man, this happens all the time. But what is God trying to do? God is trying to get his attention. And isn't that what God does to us sometimes? I think about how God will, will bring something into our, into our path to try to correct us, and we're oblivious to it sometimes. And then, then the warnings will maybe get a little bit more sterner. Then it'll maybe get a little bit more stern if we don't uh, pay attention and respond and, and, and respond to what God is doing. That's kind of what uh, God was doing here with Balaam. And he had to go to some pretty extreme means in order to get his attention. But once he did, uh, he once again warns Balaam. He says, man, uh, verse 20, uh, chapter 22, verse 34 and 35, Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I've sinned, for I knew, that thou, I knew not that thou stoodest uh, in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displease thee, I will get me back again. And the angel of the Lord said unto Balaam, go with the men, but only the word that I speak unto thee, thou shalt speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. And so you can, you can kind of get the sense that he's a little bit hard-headed. He's not taking these warnings too seriously. And God is reiterating, hey, these are my people. They're already blessed. You're not going to curse them. Don't say anything that I don't tell you to say. And so eventually, after their 400-mile journey, Balak meets up with Balaam. And uh, they make it to Moab. And obviously, Balak is excited. We're, we're down here right here. Uh, they make it to Moab, and they're excited. Uh, Balak's like, man, I got the guy I've been looking for. I got this diviner who's going to curse Israel. He's going to solve all of my problems. And the next day, uh, they take him on the tour through the mountains of Moab. And this is where we're going to start uh, looking at a, a couple of our slides here. So the first place that they take him is a place called Bamoth Baal. And that's going to be this little red dot right up here, Bamoth Baal. Okay, so that's the first mountain that they go to. And on that mountain, we see in verse, uh, uh, chapter 2 and verse 41, look at what it says here. It says, And it came to pass on the morrow that Balak took Balaam and brought him up into the high places of Baal, uh, that uh, thence he might see the utmost part 
of the people. And so Balak uh, takes him up to the mountain so he can see the people that he's wanting them to, that he's wanting Balaam to curse and so that he can do his diviner thing and, and put a curse on them. Maybe he thinks, you know, once he sees the magnitude of my problems, surely he's going to understand, uh, you know, the problem that I have on my hand. So Balaam tells the king uh, in the next uh, verse, he says, hey, uh, let's uh, build me seven altars and prepare me here seven oxen and seven rams. And so they build some altars, they put some sacrifices on, and uh, understanding that he was diviner uh, gives us some insight into his actions. Why would he do this? Well, this was the normal thing uh, for him to do. You know, they would sacrifice animals to the gods uh, in order to try to appease them so they could get their way with the god. Uh, so he would do the curse that they're asking him to do. And so uh, this would have been standard practice, but it wouldn't typically be on this scale. It wouldn't have been this big of a to-do. They wouldn't have gone all out and did seven altars and, you know, 14 different sacrifices. That wasn't the normal. And I think that uh, indicates that uh, Balaam kind of knew what he was up against. Balaam knew uh, the God that he was dealing with. This was probably, I'm sure, the first God that ever came to him and told him to do anything, again, because he's the only God. And so uh, he's dealing with, uh, he sets up these sacrifices. And, uh, it, and again, it's quite possible that he thought maybe I can make a deal with God. Maybe he's going to seek, uh, you know, maybe there's going to be some favor uh, that he shows upon me. In fact, look at verse 4. Look what he says when God meets with him. He says unto him, look, I've prepared seven altars. I've offered upon every altar a bullock and a ram. It's like, look, God, at what I did. Look at these sacrifices we put out for you. And uh, by the way, I've got a request here. Uh, I want you to curse these people. And, uh, and that doesn't go, that's not what happens. In verse number seven, look what it says here. Uh, it says uh, that God comes, he, get, he puts words in his mouth. Verse seven, he took up this parable and said, Balak, the king of Moab, hath brought me from Aram out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come, curse me, Jacob, and come, defy Israel. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? From, far, uh, from, from the top of the rocks... I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. And so he gives this parable. He gives this oracle, this message, and, and, and he refuses to curse Israel. He says, how can I curse uh, you know, those who, who have been blessed? I can't, I can't do that. And so from this view, it's important to note uh, that it says he can only see the utmost part of the people, meaning he can only see the outskirts of the people. And even by just seeing the outskirts of the people, he's taken back. I mean, he says this is like the dust of Jacob. Uh, he says, man, who can number a fourth part of them? There's so many of them. There's, there, he's talking about the multitude. And well, Balak, he's furious, right? I mean, he paid this guy good money. He sent a long ways to get him to come down here. He had to do it twice. Uh, he comes, he's offered up sacrifices, which weren't cheap. And instead of a curse, uh, Balaam refuses to curse them. And so Numbers chapter 23, uh, look over there in uh, verse number 11. Look what happens. So Balak says, he's not going to give up that easy. Balak says unto Balaam, what hast thou done unto me? I took thee to curse mine enemies. Behold, thou hast blessed them all together. Uh, he says, man, what are you doing? I, I told you to, to curse them. You didn't do that. You blessed them all together. And, uh, and Balak decides, you know, here's the, the problem. It's the place. I took him to the wrong place. I shouldn't have taken him to, to Bamoth Bell. I took him to the wrong mountain. I should take him to another place, uh, you know, where he can uh, do a better job. Maybe he needs to see uh, more of the camp. And, and he's not sure what's happening. So he comes and takes him to another place. Now, also, it's important to note that with these diviners, 
it was important for them to be able to see the person or the people that they were going to be cursing. So that's why the view was so important. They had to take him somewhere uh, where they could see him. So that's why they keep moving. Uh, Balaam's hoping uh, to, to give, uh, Balak's hoping to give Balaam a better perspective uh, so that he can curse them more effectively. And so they go to a new place, and this time they go to Pisgah. You got that map right there? That's going to be the second little dot up here. It says Zophim, uh, because in the Bible, if you look, uh, it says in verse number 14, and he brought him into the field of Zophim to the top of Pisgah. So this is another uh, mountain. Uh, this is also known in the Bible as Mount Nebo. Uh, sounds familiar. And so uh, they take him up to this other mountain uh, where now he's going to ask him again, hey, look, let's try this again. Maybe new perspective is going to help. Uh, I want you to curse him again. And so look what happens. Uh, it says, uh, stand here. We're going to offer some more burnt offerings while I meet with the Lord. And so the Lord again meets with Balaam, verse number, um, uh, verse number 16. And he puts a, a word in his mouth and he goes back to Balak. And this time he says, uh, he's, and you picture this too, it says he's standing here with the princes, with all the, the altars around him, with the sacrifices that have just been poured out. It's kind of embarrassing. They're expecting something good. They're expecting a curse. And here's Balaam uh, taking up another parable in verse number 18. He says, God is not a man. That he should lie, verse 19, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He hath not uh, beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brought them out out of Egypt, and, ha and he hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. Uh, surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time, it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what hath God wrought? So again, he goes to curse them, and this time a blessing comes out. God blesses them. And, uh, and Balaam, uh, from this perspective, uh, he, sees, uh, it says he sees not all of them, see the utmost part of them. I believe from this perspective, if you were to uh, draw it out on a map, uh, can we go to one of those maps there? If you were to look at the map, uh, and there's some cool pictures you can find online. I couldn't get any of them put on here. But if you were standing here looking at Shatim, uh, you'd be able to kind of make out roughly the camp. And you maybe wouldn't be able to see the tabernacle, but I believe he could have seen that Shekinah glory cloud coming up uh, from the camp. And he, as he's looking out there, he declares that Yahweh is with them, that God is with them, uh, that the, king, the shout of a king is among them. And so this is significant because this is really the first first specific mention of Yahweh as king of his people in the Bible. Well, again, Balak is furious. He says, man, what are you doing? I brought you up to curse them. Now you're blessing them. Still unwilling to take no for an answer. Balak says, all right, we're going to go to another mountain. Now, after two unsuccessful attempts, you think maybe he'd think about giving up, but he doesn't. He continues uh, to go. In verse, uh, Numbers chapter 23 uh, look at verse number 27. It says, And Balak said unto Balaam, Come, I pray thee, I will bring thee unto another place. Peradventure will please God that thou mayest curse, uh, that thou mayest curse me them from hence. And Balak brought Balaam unto the top of Peor that looketh toward Jeshimon. And so uh, this time he goes to Beth Peor. And that's going to be this third 
uh, mountaintop up here. And this is going to be the best view uh, that they're going to get of Shatim. And so there they are. They're on the top of Beth Pure, and they're looking down. And, uh, and again, the, the fact that he's doing this a third time shows his desperation, uh, that he thought, man, this is just a matter of persuading God to get what I wanted. Uh, Balak thought maybe another place would give him the results uh, that he was looking for. And again, this is becoming an expensive endeavor. Everywhere they go, they're setting up seven altars. They're giving 14 different sacrifices. And so uh, by this time, uh, the suggestion of Balaam, they've offered 21 bulls, 21 rams, plus whatever they're going to pay uh, Balaam for all of this. But this third time is different. Instead of going to God to get a word from God, Balaam lifts up his eyes and it says he's moved by what he sees. As he looks upon Israel camped around the tabernacle, uh, as God had told them to camp, rather than seeing things from Balak's perspective, he now sees them from God's perspective. Uh, look in verse, uh, uh, look in chapter number 24 and verse number 2. It says, And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel abiding in his tents according to their tribes. And the Spirit of God came upon him. What's different? From this view, what was it uh, that he saw? Well, uh, from Beth Pure, Balaam could have seen all of Israel. And uh, he could have seen them, it says they're uh, abiding in his tents according to their tribes. Well, what did that look like? Well, uh, in order to understand it better, you'd have to go back and look at Numbers chapter 2, which we're not going to do uh, in detail tonight. Uh, but in Numbers chapter 2, God gave Moses uh, some very specific instructions for how Israel was supposed to camp around the tabernacle. Uh, he said the tabernacle is supposed to be set up. It's going to face the east. You're going to have the different groups of Levites. They're going to be gathered around the tabernacle, uh, one group on each side. And then he divided the other 12 tribes into four different camps. So Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, they became the tribe of Judah. Uh, Reuben, Simeon, and Gad, they became the tribe of Reuben collectively. Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, they became, uh, began, became the tribe of Ephraim uh, collectively. And then Dan, Asher, and Naphtali became the tribe of Dan collectively. And these different tribes, God gave them specific instructions on where they were supposed to camp. And so Judah would have been camping to the east. Reuben would have been camping to the south. Ephraim to the west. And Dan to the north. And the Bible in Numbers chapter 2 gives us a very detailed account of the number of males uh, who were uh, 20 and above in each camp. In Judah, there were 186,400. In Reuben, there were 151,450. In Ephraim, there were 108,100. And in Dan, there were 157,600. Now, what do we know about the Jews? When it comes to the law, except for times they're rebellious, they try to be, uh, don't go too, you're going too fast. Don't go ahead of me. You got to listen, man. Uh, what do we know about the Jews? They tried to follow instructions. <laughs> Unlike sound booth people. Uh, they tried to follow instructions, right? They kept to the letter of the law, right? Uh, what do we know about during Jesus' day, right? The Pharisees, man, they, were, they stuck to that letter and every, they didn't cut corners. And so if you think about it, if God gives instructions to go to the east and to the, to the west and to the north and to the south, what do you do about the areas in the corner? Right? Because it's neither north or west. It's neither south or east. It's kind of its own direction. And so I would submit that if they were following a strict adherence to those rules, it would only allow them to set up camp in cardinal directions, right? You know, exactly east, exactly west, exactly north, exactly south. And so what you would be left with is the tabernacle surrounded by different camps 
uh, with these the, uh, different Levi camps with four other camps going out in four separate directions. And assuming that the length of each camp is proportionate to the number of males that we just talked about in each camp, uh, the shape that you would be left with is a cross. Now you can go to the next one. So this is kind of an example. And so uh, Baal would have been, uh, Balaam rather, would have been standing at the bottom of this thing, looking up. He'd see Judah. That'd be his first tribe that he'd see. You're not going to be able to see these numbers, but you can do this exercise on your own if you want to. Try to uh, draw it out proportionately. But I believe that when he came up and he viewed the camp of Israel and camped all around uh, the tabernacle, I believe he saw this symbol. Now, I don't know that he understood all that it meant or, or all that it could have meant in the future, uh, but I believe he was taken back by it, that there was order, that there was harmony, that there was design all around this. Rather than just some uh, group of haphazard jumbled around people, they were meticulously aligned around this central sanctuary where the, the glory cloud of the Lord was coming up out of the tabernacle. Go to the next slide. Uh, there's an artist's rendering of what maybe it would have looked like as he came up and saw uh, the tabernacle. Uh, just as the cross of Christ comes order, harmony, and design. And again, I, I, I read that and I tend to think, I doubt that many people understood the significance of it in his day and having to order uh, and, and be in these different places. Uh, you think about even the shape, if it was this, and there's, there's debate, there's other ideas out there. Uh, this is the one I tend to, tend to think was maybe likely. Uh, but you think about it, even, even if it was this way, there would have been only one perspective from which this could have been viewed. And it would have been above. Nobody coming and approaching it from the side would have realized what shape it was or what it looked like. They wouldn't have been able to appreciate it. There were no airplanes. There were no drones. You didn't have uh, any aerial devices. Uh, vi visiting nations wouldn't have appreciated it. Uh, the only perspective it was viewable was from above where Balaam was looking down. Uh, perhaps it could have been that as God looks down upon his people, uh, he looked toward the cross, the culmination of his redemption for his people. But whatever the reason, it's a reminder that rarely, if ever, do we understand God's perspective on everything. And, and so we see here, uh, the, no, notice the progression of these parables, by the way. Uh, it says, first, there was this prophecy uh, th that came from Balaam, and he refused to curse Israel. The second, uh, Balaam blesses Israel. The third, uh, Balak gets cursed. Uh, remember, it says, curses he, that's Balak, that curseth thee, Israel. And so uh, Balak, again, he's livid, he's berserk. Uh, he's losing his mind over, over this whole thing. And look what it says in chapter 24 and verse 10. It says, and Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam. And he smote his hands together, and Balak said unto Balaam, I called thee to curse mine enemies, and behold, thou hast altogether blessed them these three times. Therefore now flee thou to thy place. I thought to promote thee unto great honor, but lo, the Lord hath kept thee back from honor. Balak says, man, get out of here. Forget about getting paid. I was going to honor you. I was going to do good to you. Uh, forget it. Just go home. Well, Balak, he tries to, you know, he's, he's not happy either. He's just lost out one of his biggest potential clients. And so in a last ditch effort to gain favor with Baal, he offers, hey, he says, hey, let me tell you what's going to happen in the end times with these people. And so that brings us to his fourth parable. And he says in verse uh, 17, which is where we started this evening, he says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. And so he gives this prophecy 
Balaam says, hey, there's, there will come out of Jacob a star and a scepter. What exactly is Balaam foretelling? Well, to better understand it, uh, we've got a verse up here, Amos chapter 5 and verse 26. You got that verse? It says this, it says, But ye have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and your Kiyun, your images, the star of your God, which ye made to yourselves. What's Amos doing in there? He's referring to the idols that they've created, and he calls them stars. He says, hey, you, you got your, you, these, these, the star of your God, talking about Moloch and Kiyun. And so in ancient times, a star often represented deity. And so the various gods of Mesopotamian nations are often represented by the symbol of a star. i got some examples of this. Go to the next slide here. Uh, you'll notice here, uh, these, are some of the, these are from like ancient Samaria and Mesopotamia, where they find uh, these images of their god, and they're, 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 they're found alongside of these star images. Go, I think there's another one. Is there another one? Uh, here's another one, right? You've got the Sumerian god, and you have uh, him pointing to a star, pointing to his god. I think that's the last one. you got one more? Okay, uh, so he talks about this star. And so uh, the stars, again, it represented deity. And now he says not only that, but there's going to be a star coming out of Jacob. But then he said, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. He said, what was a scepter? Well, a scepter was a symbol of a king. It was a symbol of royalty. Uh, you know, one who had authority. I think you can go to the next slide here. Uh, uh, here's an example, uh, another example. And so you'll see in this one, you can tell who the king is, right? Because what has he got in his hand? He's got a scepter, and this is, this is a symbol of his God. Go to the next slide. Uh, here's another example. This is, we showed you this one, right? Here's the king, right? He's got a scepter, and he's pointing to his God that he gets his, his power, his authority from God. Here's another picture of a, a Mesopotamian God who's uh, got a star associated with it. Uh, you can go to the next slide. Um, all right, we can stop. Don't go any further. Uh, and so uh, there we see he's giving this, uh, these examples, these, this star and this scepter. So we have a symbol of deity. We have a symbol of a king, royalty, authority. Uh, now this is important because Israel only had one star, right? They only had one God. He says, hey, besides me, there's none else, right? There was only one God. So they only had one God. Beside Jehovah, there were no other gods. And so for this prophecy, as it relates to Israel, the concept of a star and a scepter coming out of Jacob, coming out of Israel, could only mean one thing. And that is that God himself would come out of Jacob. That a God king would come out of Israel. That God himself, that meant that God was going to become one of them. And so this is a messianic prophecy. And what Balaam is saying here as he relates this to Balak is that the most important people uh, thing about this people is that not now, but in the future will come from them a God king. A God king. And you've got to think about the circumstances in which he's given this. Here he is. He's standing on Mount uh, Beth Peor. He's looking out over the tribe of Israel, encamped around the tabernacle. And God is saying, hey, listen, there's coming a day where God himself is going to come up out of the people of Israel that he's going to rule uh, as their king. This was, this was a, a prophecy of the coming Messiah. This was the same prophecy you read about during Christmas time. The wise men coming, looking for a star. Why do they come? Because of this prophecy. There was a prophecy that there was a star that was going to come out of Jacob. And so they come from the east following this star that would lead to this Messiah. It was Jesus who declared himself 
to be the bright and the morning star. So Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy that was given 1,400 years before his birth. Now, there have been some who have argued that this wasn't a messianic prophecy. Maybe this was a Davidic prophecy uh, that, that is being fulfilled. But uh, I have a, go, go, no, uh, go to the next slide, the one with the Hebrew writing. It's like kind of blue. There you go. Um, the interesting thing about this is that the oldest copy that we have that records this star prophecy was found alongside the Dead Sea Scrolls. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in cave number four, they found this document that's called the Testimonia. And what it is, it's a Jewish collection of these Old Testament verses about the Messiah. And they've dated it back to about 125 B.C. before Christ. And, in, in, and one of the things that it mentions is this verse that we find in chapter uh, 24, verse 17. Where I shall uh, behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And what it was is it was the Jews of that day, 125 years roughly before Christ's birth, who were talking about the things that they were still anticipating, things that they were still looking for, that the Messiah, the star and the scepter were going to come. They were still expecting this event to happen. So the Jews of that day, they understood hey, this is a messianic prophecy. This is a messianic uh, uh, thing. And, and, you know, Jesus said uh, in John chapter 5 and verse 39, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Wherever we turn in Scripture, we find Christ. We find Christ in the Old Testament. We find the pictures and illustrations of the cross foretelling God's redemptive plan. Uh, and it's a reminder that God takes seriously his blessing toward Israel. Even from the mouth of a pagan soothsayer comes this glorious revelation about the Lord Jesus Christ. God turns what's meant to be a curse into a blessing. It's because he takes seriously his blessing of Israel. And we too ought to bless Israel and not to curse them. I think that's one of the reasons why it's important that we support Israel, that we pray for Israel, because God promises to bless those that bless him and curse them that curse him. And so what are some applications? You say, man, that's a lot. What, do we, what's our take, what does this mean for me? What's the takeaway? Well, I wrote down a couple things. Man, you're fast. You're excited for those next slides. I wrote down number one this. God takes seriously his covenants with his people. Take seriously his covenants with his people. Again, Balak wanted to see, uh, wanted Balaam to see Israel from his perspective. They wanted to see, they, they, he wanted Balaam to see uh, them as a threat that needed to be eliminated. Balaam wanted God to see Israel from his perspective. As, as this is an opportunity for me to make out on a lucrative offer. But the reality is that God wanted both of them to see Israel from his perspective. As his covenant people, those that he had blessed, those that, uh, that he had uh, come into a covenant with through the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant, uh, just for a reminder, dealt with three main aspects. Don't get ahead of me. The land, the seed, and the blessing. And we didn't spend a lot of time on it, but through Balaam's three parables, you know what God recounts and God reiterates? The three different aspects of that promise. The land, the seed, and the blessing. Parable number one, he talks about uh, who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel. Uh, that's, that, that reference to the dust of Jacob is a clear reference to the promise that he made to Abraham. 
and his covenant descendants. Genesis 13, verse 16, I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. It was a reference to that seed promise. His second message, parable 2, was a reference to that blessing. He says in chapter 22, verse 20 and 21, Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He hath, beheld iniquity, uh, he hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. Uh, that's a reference to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Chapter 12 and verse 22 and 3, it says, And I will make thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And so he was reiterating that promise of a blessing, that promise of a seed. But then in that third parable, he reiterates that blessing, uh, that promise of land, rather. Uh, Numbers chapter 24, verse 6 and 7, it says, As the valleys uh, are they spread forth, as gardens by thy riverside, as trees of lime aloes, uh, which the Lord hath planted, as cedar trees beside the waters, he shall pour the water out of his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Balaam's talking about how Israel is going to possess a fertile land, that they're going to become a kingdom, and Balaam sees beyond the present where they're at right now, uh, and he sees them con conquering Canaan, and he sees them settled in their own land, and he sees the fertileness of their land. Uh, this is all a reference to what God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord hath said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And so Balaam makes clear to Balak that God is not one to go back on his covenants. Even out of Balaam's own mouth, he says in chapter 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither uh, the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? God's covenant love can be seen for Israel on how he reiterates this promise to bless those that bless his people and curse those that curse his people. So he takes seriously his covenants with his, with his people. He has no intention on going back with that. But here's a second application I wrote down, and that is that we've been given a better covenant through Jesus Christ. We've been given a better covenant through Jesus. Why, as, as Christians, should we be concerned with this Old Testament prophecy? What relevance does it have for you and I today? Well, it was through this star and through this scepter that Balaam is prophesying about the Messiah and by way of the cross, uh, which he saw God's means of redemption, that you and I have been brought into a greater covenant. That we've been brought into God's covenant love through a new and better covenant. Hebrews chapter 9, uh, really the whole book of Hebrews, talks about how Christ is better. In Hebrews chapter 9, it talks about the old covenant. He talks about the first covenant and the, the different symbols that it has in chapter number 9. And he goes through and he lists out those. But he says in verse 9, he says, "...which was a figure for the time present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and cardinal ordinances, imposed on them until the time of reformation." But then he says this, verse 11, "...but Christ, being come in high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood." 
He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Verse 15, it says, And for this cause he is the mediator of a new testament, a new covenant, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgression that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. So he's saying there, uh, we've got a better covenant. He says, hey, the first, the first tabernacle, uh, that, was, that was all a picture of what Christ was going to do. That was the shadow of the law. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. And we have a new uh, uh, covenant, a new testament through him by means of the death uh, that, he, that he died on Calvary. And so Balaam's prophetic vision was one of the coming Messiah that would usher in a new covenant. One through which he could make possible redemption for the entire world and bring us under his covenant love and care. As one of Christ's redeemed, redeemed, we've received, he says, the promise of eternal inheritance. We've been brought into God's family through this new covenant that Christ has established. So we've been given a better covenant through Jesus Christ. And here's the third application is that if we have a better covenant through Jesus Christ, then, we have a, then, then how much better is our inheritance? Amen. How much better is our prom, are our promises? How much better are our blessings? See, the book of Hebrews, again, it's all about how Christ is better. Christ has a better priesthood. He has a better covenant. Uh, he, has a better, he has better promises. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. In every way, Christ is better. And you and I, we don't have time tonight to study all the different promises that we have in Christ. But I want you to just uh, real quick flip over to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll, this will be our last place here. Ephesians chapter number 1. And look here, uh, just, just kind of skimming through a couple of verses here in Ephesians chapter 1. Really, beginning in verse number three, and as we read this, think about the similarities between the Abrahamic covenant and some of the things that we're reading here. It says, verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us, here you go, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. He talks about the blessings that we have. Hey, in Christ, we have all spiritual blessings. Verse number five, he says, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. We've been, we've been adopted through Christ. We've been brought into the beloved in Christ. Verse 11, it says, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. So we've got an inheritance in Christ, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who hath worked all things together after the counsel of his will. Verse 14, uh, he talks about, which is the earnest, talking about the spirit of promise, is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Man, you want to encourage yourself uh, and in the Lord read about all that we have in Christ. Read Ephesians and him talking about that. But, you know, in Israel, in the Old Testament, they were looking for the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, God's promise of land, God's promise of seed, God's promise of blessing. But Jesus is the fulfillment of that covenant. Hey, when it comes to land, Abraham knew and he understood that the dwelling that he longed for, it wasn't just a physical reality, but it was a spiritual one. And Jesus makes all of this possible. Why? Because he's our dwelling place. He's our promised possession. He's our inheritance and we're his. 
Then you think about the seed. Jesus, he's the ultimate seed of promise. He's the one that was, that was prophesied of and the one that was spoken of. And through him, we've been adopted by Christ to himself. And then when we think about blessings, again, it says in Christ we have all spiritual blessings. And so if you're a child of God, you're a child of the new, the new covenant. It's a better covenant. It's got better promises. It's got better blessings. As good as the covenant with Abraham was, the Bible says Christ is better. As good as the blessings for Abraham were, Christ are better. As good as the promises were for Abraham, Christ are better. And so if God did the supernatural to protect and to watch over Israel, if God was faithful to keep his word with the Abrahamic covenant, how much more can we rest assured that he'll do the same with us? Amen. That God is watching over you, that God's uh, not intending to go back on his promises for you. If God would go through the lengths that he went through to turn a curse into a blessing, then we can rest assured that God is working all things together for good in our lives as well. Let's all stand together with our heads bowed.